0: Okay. Um, at RUF, we believe that you're never so bad, that you're beyond the reach of God's grace, and at the same time, you're never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace. That was the thing that Justin was alluding to. Um, but thankfully, Jesus is full of grace, but I'm not, so I'm going to shame you for that right now. I'm just kidding. You did a great job. It was fine. That was exactly what you needed to say. Um, RUF is all about the grace of God and Jesus. And so every week, you're going to hear us talk about Jesus. You're going to hear us talk about something called the gospel. Um, You're going to hear us talk about God's grace, because we think that that's the most important thing that you need to hear about. Uh, And every semester in RUF, uh, we do a sermon series. So this semester, we are doing one in the book of Exodus. Um, It's going to be called Knowing God. Uh, Exodus is the second book of the Bible, if you're not familiar with it. And uh, in this, in the book of Exodus, kind of there are two questions that are answered. We're going to be coming back to them again and again. First is, who is God? And the second is, what does it mean to know him? So who is God and what does it mean to know him? So as we look at Exodus this semester, those are kind of the questions we're going to be considering. And we're kicking off here uh, in Exodus 1, 1 through 21. So uh, it's the end of January, as you know. Uh, I don't know if you've noticed this, but there's lots of snow outside, uh, and it's really, really cold. Uh, And this time of year, I I was looking into it, and it's actually kind of statistically one of the most depressing times of the year. Uh, And if you think about it, really, like, the month of kind of from November on through December, and even at the beginning of the year, you just kind of always know what's coming. There's, like, some sort of, like, rhythm... You know, in November, you've got Thanksgiving coming. And if you're a person like me, you're listening to Christmas music, like right when November 1 hits. Um, You're listening to Christmas music. You're anticipating getting together with family and friends for Thanksgiving. Then you've got Christmas and you got, you know, the whole elf on the shelf situation. You're decorating the house. Like people are going crazy about all that stuff. In the whole month of December, it kind of feels like you're part of a world where everything is significant. You've got all these like great family traditions all sorts of stuff going on like that the month of december it kind of feels like you're a part of an ongoing story feels like you're you're in the midst of kind of a narrative things feel kind of magical but now at kind of this point of january everything feels like blah there's no christmas trees there's no lights it's just cold and you've just reached the genealogies in your bible reading plan and it's you're just like it's not happening Like, it's just, it's tiring. It's tiring. And then, so I think we all kind of long to feel like we're part of a story. I think that feeling of December where everything kind of feels like purposeful and and we have something to look forward to, I think we all long for that. And it's why we get really into things like the holidays. Um, I was looking it up and one of the best things that you can do to kind of deal with uh, the depression that normally hits this time of year, they suggest getting really into the next thing so they suggested like throwing a Valentine's Day party or something. So if you're feeling sad, maybe check that out. I'm not going to be doing that. Um, but it's why we get into things like the holidays. It's why we do things like New Year's resolutions. It's why we get really into our sports teams and we're crushed when everybody decides to transfer, which, rip, it's really sad. If you want to talk about it, I'm here. See, we, we long to feel like we're a part of a story. And today we're going to be looking at a story at the very beginning of the book of Exodus. And it's a story that at times can feel disenchanted and can feel sad. But we're going to see that it's the true story of God's people. The true story of God's people. And it's a story that comes in three parts. So if you're a note taker, we're just going to have kind of three points here. First is blessing. Second, opposition. And third, surprising victory. So blessing, opposition, and surprising victory. So I'm going to pray for us and we can get started. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to get together and to study your word. Um, Lord, I'm so grateful for um, yeah, people being able to get here safely uh, in the midst of a time where the roads are kind of crazy. Um, Lord, I, I don't really know where everybody's at coming into this evening. I know many of us are probably overwhelmed at the prospect of a new semester. Some of us are tired. Lord, I pray that you would meet us regardless of where we are and that you would show us Jesus. All these things I ask in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so first off, blessing, blessing. If you would look with me to verse one, it says, these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. And then it goes on to list all of the sons of Jacob, and so, at the beginning of Exodus, kind of, there's a, it's recalling the book of Genesis. And if you're unfamiliar with Genesis, uh, if you've never encountered that part of the Bible, uh, Genesis is the story of everything. Really, it's the story of God creating the world. It's the story of God uh, choosing a specific family that He's going to accomplish His mission through. It's the story of Adam and Eve, of Noah, of Abraham and Sarah, of Isaac and Ishmael, of Jacob and Jacob's sons. And if I had to choose kind of like one word to sum up what Genesis is all about, it would be blessing. Blessing. It's a word that's used like over 80 times in the book of Genesis. Again and again, we see this language of blessing. And I wonder, what do you, what do you think of when you hear the word blessing? Um, because I'm like a white guy of a certain age, I think of Chance the Rappers, uh, it seems like blessings keep falling in my lap. Um, Or maybe you think, so we kind of think of it as like material gain or something, like something good that just kind of happens to us. Or maybe you think of a blessing like asking a prayer before a meal. Uh, But biblically, that's not what blessing means. Uh, Biblically, it means special relationship. It means God establishing a special relationship with you. It's relational language. So when we see something about God saying that he blesses someone, it's not so much saying that like God just gave them a million dollars so much as it's, it's similar to how like in when you're defining the relationship with someone, you go from being friends to boyfriend and girlfriend. It's like a change of status. It changes the way that things work between you. So when God blesses someone, it's a change of status. It's moving them from just kind of a general sense to a special relationship with God. So how does God bless How does this happen here? We see it in verse 5. It says all the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons, and Joseph was already in Egypt. So in the story of Genesis, Jacob um, has all of these sons, and there's a severe famine that arises, and then the sons are delivered kind of into Egypt uh, to be protected from the famine. And when they came into Egypt, there were only 70 of them. And now this is like about 400 years later, And it says that there were tons of them. It says in verse seven, the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. So the people of Israel kind of in four generations, they've gone from being a a people of about 70 to just like a massive swarming nation. And in a time like this, there was extremely high infant mortality. So it was like 30 to 50% of kids made it to their teenage years in a time like this. So God has taken this small nation and made them huge. There's this one translation I found of this this verse, verse 7. It says of Israel, they grew, they were fruitful, they swarmed, they increased, they got powerful more and more, and the land was filled with them. You see, God's blessing resulted in multiplication. They became a huge nation from just 70 people. But why does God bless Why does he establish this special relationship? I think we see a hint in verse 7. It says, the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong. If you're familiar at all with the Bible, uh, you might notice that this is kind of echoing Genesis 1 and 2. This is the language that that God said to Adam and Eve. He told them to be fruitful and to multiply. Told them to fill the earth and subdue it. You see, God blesses his people in order for them to fill the earth. This is what God is all about. He's about creating people in his image, sending them out, and filling the earth. God wants his image everywhere on the earth, and that's why he blesses people. God blesses people so that they will display who he is to the world. He blesses people so that they will be a blessing, So the first part of the story is God blessing his people, and we see this repeatedly in scripture. God blesses his people so that they will be a blessing. But shortly after that, and in this story, we see opposition, see opposition. So if you would look with me to verse eight, in verse eight, we see that there is a new king over Egypt, a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And so Pharaoh in this time would have been kind of like the unquestioned king of Egypt, Uh, There was no one who could really say anything to what he did, like what he said went. And he didn't know Joseph. And uh, most scholars think that when it says that he didn't know Joseph, that this is actually kind of like more him saying that he didn't give a rip about Joseph, Uh, because Joseph would have been connected with this massive nation of people. So of course, the Pharaoh probably would have known who Joseph was. So when it says he doesn't know Joseph, it just means he doesn't care about him. So there arose a new Pharaoh that, that did not know Joseph. And what does he do? We see in verses 9 and 10 that he kind of starts a smear campaign against the Israelites. He says, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. So we see here that God, as he has blessed all of these people, as he's blessed the Israelites and made them grow and increase and multiply, Pharaoh sees this as a threat to his power. So he decides to do what what anyone does when they're threatened. He decides to start a smear campaign. He decides to start devising a plan. And we see his plan kind of uh, unhatch as things go on. In verse 11, we see that he puts taskmasters over the Israelite people. And so the idea is that he's going to take them away from doing what they were. The, the people of Israel were probably herdsmen or something kind of contracted uh, to be herdsmen in Egypt. And so he decides he's going, to, he's going to put these taskmasters over them. And he's going to take the men away to build these massive store cities. Uh, and so if you, what, what he's trying to do is to stop the people of Israel from growing and continuing to be large. What he's doing is he's taking all the men, and he's putting them somewhere else. So if you're trying to stop procreation, that's probably a good start. And he starts doing this, really, giving them to do this really intense work. And the hope is that they'll probably some of them will die. But it doesn't work. It says in verse 12, the more that they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And so the taskmasters didn't work, so what does Pharaoh do next? It says in verses 13 and 14, he, he enslaves the people. He's not just putting them to hard work, he's enslaving them. And then finally, he, he brings kind of ups the ante even more. We see in verses 15 and 16 that he starts genocide. Uh, he recruits these two Hebrew midwives. Uh, so midwives would have been someone who helps out with births, um, especially at that time that would have been like a very important role. Uh, and he recruits these two midwives, that names them Shifra and Puah. And he says to them, whenever a Hebrew child is born, if it's a male, kill it. And if it's a female, you can let it live. And this would have been a pretty easy thing for them to do. Uh, They could have easily, like when they delivered the baby, kind of just killed it and not told the family. It would have been easy for them to get away with it. And so Pharaoh, kind of the most powerful man in the world, is telling these two midwives to do this thing and to to kill the entire generation of Israelite men. And so you got to expect that they're going to do it. So why is it that God's blessing is such a threat to Pharaoh? Like, why is Pharaoh so threatened? Why does he decide to do all of this stuff? I think maybe like on an intuitive level, I think we can understand a little bit of why. Um, If you're anything like me, For the last year, uh, kind of like healthiness and eating well has kind of gone out the window. Um, So you've probably eaten a lot more like candy and potato chips and uh, frozen food than you anticipated. And then maybe at the beginning of the year, you started to try to eat healthy food. Uh, You like went from eating McDonald's like five times a day to like, I'm going to go on like an all kale diet. (laughs) And what happens to your body when something like that, when you make that quick of a change? doesn't go over well. Or maybe if you you haven't been working out at all and then you decide to start working out, like how's your body gonna respond? Like very poorly, it's not gonna go well. Or maybe even closer to home, if you've been like sleeping in for the last two months and then all of a sudden you come back and you've got classes you gotta wake up for, right? The unhealthy person does not like health. When you're in in an unhealthy system, a healthy person injected into that system is going to get attacked. That's what we see happening here. You see, Pharaoh cannot handle God's blessing here. Pharaoh's hatred of the Israelites, it's not just a simple like nationalistic king not liking someone threatening his power. It's actually part of a much bigger story. It's part of a cosmic story. It's a part of what we see in Genesis 3, after the fall into sin. We see this promise that God gives. He says of the serpent, um, he says to the serpent that the, the seed of the woman, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Blessing of God always brings about opposition. I think this is an important thing for us to, uh, to think about. Because if you're anything like me, I kind of have this belief That if I just like live my life well enough, if I'm nice enough, if I'm funny enough, then no one's ever going to dislike me. Right? This is like, it it confronts us. Like the the fact that we see opposition here, like if you're anything like me, you just don't like discomfort, you don't like people disagreeing with you, it's kind of hard to deal with. But when we look in the New Testament, Jesus himself was the very definition of blessedness. Jesus loved God and loved neighbor perfectly. And yet he suffered profound opposition. He was put to death by his contemporaries. And even more than that, he promised that if you follow him, you're going to have a similar experience. And I think we need, we need to deal with that, right? That, that sometimes being a Christian will bring opposition. And why is that? Well, if you think, like, at, at the most basic level, like, what is being a Christian? Being a Christian means being a person who believes in Jesus, who trusts in Jesus, who, who Jesus is the most central part of their life. And if you want to sum up the gospel, you could say it's, you're, you're far worse off than you ever imagined. You're dead in your trespasses and sins, but you're also at the same time far more loved than you ever thought possible. You're loved completely in Jesus. And if you just sit there and think about it, like, like why would that bother someone? Because within the gospel, you have to say to yourself every day, I am a complete and total failure. I'm not what I'm supposed to be. I'm, I'm dead in my trespasses and sins and helpless." aside from God coming to me. So if we're understanding the gospel correctly, it is going to be offensive. And that will lead to opposition. I mean, think of the way that that intersects with like our, our like performance, consumeristic culture. I mean, I don't like being a failure. I hate it. Like, and I hate myself when I feel like I'm not doing good enough. It's offensive, this sort of thing, to have your life built around this story. We balk at this because we, we, want, we want to perform. We want to do well. And the gospel offends that. So being a Christian will lead to discomfort and opposition. But opposition is not the end of the story. The end of the story is actually surprising victory. So we see this kind of starting in verse 17. So these midwives that Pharaoh has kind of called into his presence, and he's told them to put to death all of the male children We see in verse 17 that they actually didn't do it. It says, the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. And we can just kind of read this and be like, good for them. Like they they trusted in God instead of Pharaoh. That's awesome. And just close the Bible and not really think about it very much. Uh, But Pharaoh wasn't just a king. It wasn't as if what they were doing was just kind of like going somewhere and protesting Uh, what they were doing is they were opposing like the power of their time. Like Pharaoh was an unquestioned kind of like dictator king, but not only that, he was viewed as divine. Like what they were doing was they were opposing a divine figure. I found this letter that uh, a prime minister wrote to Pharaoh in the 15th century and says this of Pharaoh, says, what is the king of upper and lower Egypt? He is a god by whom one lives, the father and mother of all men, alone by himself, without an equal. So you've got this like God figure here against these two midwives. And the midwives most likely would have been older women in this culture. And they would have been older women who probably couldn't have had children. So in that culture, that would be like the absolute like destitute person the weakest of the weak. So you've got these two people, the weakest of the weak, up against the most powerful person in the world. And we see here that the midwives decide that they are going to follow what God says. They're not going to comply with Pharaoh. Then we see in verse 18 that Pharaoh noticed that his plan wasn't working. So he called the midwives into his presence and he asked them why they disobeyed him. And actually, in, in Pharaoh's defense, like, he, it kind of makes him look stupid here on some level. It's like, well, there's kids running around. Like, what the heck? Um, this probably would have taken a couple years for him to notice, uh, because kids of a certain age look kind of the exact same. <laughs> so it would have taken a while for him to notice, like, hey, there are actually a lot of boys running around. And so there's a couple years where he's expecting them to be doing this, and then he finds out that they haven't been doing it. And so as you're reading this story, you're like, oh my gosh, like he's realizing that for years they've been defying him. Like you're expecting that he's going to absolutely crush them. And so he calls these midwives back into his presence and he asks them, why why haven't you done what I said? And they give him this excuse in verse 19. They said, well, the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women for they're vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. And we don't really know kind of if this is a legitimate thing or not. Uh, I kind of tend to think that it's, it's a little bit of them just kind of being pretty shrewd um, and maybe it's, it's untrue. And a lot of people when they read this are like, well, they're lying. They shouldn't have lied. Uh, that was a bad thing for them to do. But actually, we see later on in the story that it says God dealt well with the midwives. From God's point of view, what they did was totally okay. I think a lot of times we can get overcomplicated with this and like, well, they shouldn't have lied to Pharaoh, right? They should have trusted God. Uh, The point here is that Pharaoh, what Pharaoh is doing is evil. (laughs) Pharaoh is trying to kill an entire generation of children. And what they were doing through their actions was protecting those children. And it seems as if God is completely okay with what they did. We see that. Yeah, so I think that, and there's also this this kind of like irony here that I think is really important. In verse 10, Pharaoh says that he wants to, he gets all of his people together and he says, we're going to deal shrewdly with the Israelites. We're going to be wise concerning them. We're going to figure out a way to kind of manage the Israelite problem. And then what we see here is these two Hebrew midwives, these two older women deal shrewdly with Pharaoh. They kind of flip things around on him. These two women who who were compared to Pharaoh, the definition of weakness are what God uses to accomplish his purpose. God works in surprising ways here. And we see that God dealt well with the midwives in verses 20 and 21. Pharaoh had commanded them to destroy households and they resisted. And instead, the midwives are given victory and God gives them households. We see this at the end. It says, because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. And remember, they're likely old, childless women. And then God gives them children. This ending is what, if you're familiar with uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, it's what he would have called eucatastrophe. If you've never heard that word, uh, it's because it's not a word. He made it up. Um, but eucatastrophe, it's kind of a combination of two Greek words. There's eu which just means good, and then catastrophe, which means catastrophe right? this is a, It's a good catastrophe. It's a sudden change at the end of a story that brings about like a surprising victory. It's an upswing. It's, the, it's kind of a happy ending that defies your wildest dreams. And we see this in so many stories, so many stories that we love. And we see from this story that God is a God of surprising, happy endings. And of course, the, the resurrection of Jesus is the ultimate happy ending. You see, in Jesus, we see death is defeated by death. The the very thing that so many of us think about or spend so much time avoiding thinking about, Jesus faced it head on. And in so doing, defeated death. Sinful humanity is restored to God through Jesus' death and resurrection. So this is the story of God's people. The story of God's people's blessing, opposition, and surprising victory. And and it's a compelling story. But you might be thinking, like, like, what does this have to do with us? Or or maybe another way of asking is, how do I know that this is my story? How how can I be a part of this story? I think the only way into this story is is to be granted access through Jesus. Paul talks about this in, in Romans 6. He says, we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. If we have been united with him in death, we shall certainly be united with him in resurrection. You know, this is a big deal. Okay. Is by faith. In Jesus, we are united to him. What does it mean to have faith in Jesus? It just means to receive him and to rest in him. It means for Jesus to be the most central thing in your life. And this is ultimate, I mean, this is the ultimate surprising victory. This story is true of us when we place our faith in Jesus. See, when we place our faith in Jesus, what is true of him becomes true of us in a mysterious way. You see, suffering can't take away our hope because our hope is seated at the right hand of God. Our sin can't take away our hope because our hope is seated at the right hand of God. Our failure can't take away our hope. Our humanity can't take away our hope because it's seated at the right hand of God. See, in Jesus, we have blessedness. We have a special relationship with God that can never be taken away. And in Jesus, we have companionship and suffering. We know that opposition, it's not the end of the story. And in Jesus, we have the ultimate surprising victory. Through his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus has created a way for us. You see, in Jesus, this story is our story. And if you're sitting here wondering, like, man, I don't know about all this stuff, like, that, Jesus sounds great, but I don't really know how that kind of intersects with my life. I would love to get coffee with you and talk about this. Jason would love to get coffee with you and talk about this. Because that's what we're all about in RUF. We believe that God's grace to us in Jesus makes a difference. So let's pray. Father, I just want to thank you for your word. I want to thank you for the good news of Jesus that our suffering is not the end. Lord, that um, the surprising victory that we see in this passage in Exodus, it, it's a foretaste of the victory that is ours in Jesus. Lord, that our uh, suffering is not the end of the story. Our pain is not the end of the story. Our failure is not the end of the story. The end of the story is resurrection and life. All these things I ask in Jesus' name, amen. Um, so it is our practice.